in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 22, again, a message I've entitled, God's Restoration. Please stand with me out of honor to God and His Word as I read. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the heathen, whither you went. Thank you. You may be seated. We are talking about God's restoration today. Now, speaking of that, there was a wife, and she bought a new line of expensive cosmetics guaranteed to restore her appearance to look years younger. Well, after a lengthy sitting before the mirror, applying this miracle product, she asked her husband, honestly, what age would you say I am? Looking over her carefully, her husband replied, judging from your skin, 20. Your hair, 18. Your figure, 25. She gushed, oh, you're so sweet. He said, wait a minute, I haven't added them all up yet. Let's look at God's restoration. First of all, by way of introduction, here in this very important chapter, chapter 36 of Ezekiel, God promises Israel, through Ezekiel, a national restoration. If you read this chapter on your own, you will see that God promises an agricultural restoration. Crops are going to grow like crazy. He promises a populational restoration. People are going to come back and really just repopulate the whole thing. He promises a spiritual restoration where people will turn their hearts to God again. Now, we know that God has a purpose for all He does and for all He allows. But why would God do this? Why would God restore Israel? I mean, think about it. His people had rejected Him repeatedly, historically. Why would He do this? As we read there in verse 22, they profaned His name, even in exile. As they were booted out of their land and were in exile in Babylon, they profaned His name. Why would God restore Israel? Today's message will explain why God did what He did and why God does what He does. In fact, what I'm going to share with you today is the lens through which every believer should look at every event, whether in your own lives or in history, past history, history that will be made in the future. Today's message addresses the lens through which we can answer the question, why did God do what He did? Why does God do what He does? Why would he restore Israel? Well, number one answer, for his sake. For his sake. Look back to verse 22 that I read. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, but for my holy name's sake. Why does God do what he do for his sake? In particular here in chapter 36, God's honor was at stake. You see, God does not deserve, nor does he appreciate when he's maligned. God doesn't deserve to be maligned. And God doesn't appreciate when he is maligned. Now, the fact of the matter, if you look in verse 19, God had punished his people via conquering and exile. And so because his people had sinned, he allowed them to be conquered by Babylon and he allowed them to be taken into exile into Babylon. That was for their sin. But let's look at verse 19. He says, And I scattered them among the heathen, and they were dispersed to the countries according to their way and according to their doings. I judged them. God said, I did this to them. The problem is the nations were saying that God either had abandoned his people or 
that God was unable to defend his people against the superior nation of Babylon and their gods. That's what people were saying. Now God is clear, I did this. I made sure they were conquered. I made sure they were exiled. But the people were saying, oh, God abandoned his people. The people were saying, God couldn't hang with Babylon. They're too tough. They're too mighty. Their gods are too strong. Well, God doesn't deserve to be maligned. And God doesn't appreciate it when he's maligned. And so when men won't honor God, he honors himself. When men won't honor God, he honors himself. You might say, well, that sounds kind of prideful to me. I want you to understand that God is not capable of pride. You know, when we talk about somebody who's prideful, who's boastful, they say how wonderful they are. They say how great they are. Well, I want you to know about God. God is the biggest. God is the best. God is the strongest. God is the smartest. God is the wealthiest. It's not pride when it's a fact. God is glorious. And everything God does is glorious. When God acts, it's for His glory. When God acts, it brings Him glory. But God is not only glorious. God is holy. He's holy. Now that word holy means to be set apart. And so God is not part of His creation. He's not like His creation. He's set apart. He's holy. But the Bible says God is not just holy. He's holy, holy, holy. And so God is way set apart from the rest of his creation. He's not just one of the guys. And by the way, when the Bible says that God is holy, 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 that's also a reference to the Trinity. God the Father is holy. God the Son is holy. God the Spirit is holy. Not only is God glorious and God holy, God is worthy. God is worthy. Please hear me. God is not a myth. He's not a curse word. He's not a casual friend. He's the Lord God Almighty. That's who He is. He is glorious. He is holy. He is worthy. Brother Gary, you make it sound like everything's about Him. It is. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the savior of the universe. It's all about Him. He's no megalomaniac. He's no narcissist. He's God. He's glorious. He's holy. He's worthy. What does that have to do with us? God is gracious to us because He chooses to be. God is gracious to us because He chooses to be. He doesn't have to be. God doesn't have to do anything God doesn't want to do because He's God. Israel was undeserving. They had rejected Him in the past, they were rejecting Him in the present. And yet God chose to restore them. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. They were bad. And wait till you see what God is going to do for them. You know what Ezekiel was doing here? Ezekiel was preaching God's grace. God's grace. Why? Israel didn't deserve it. Israel wasn't good. For heaven's sakes, Israel was profaning God's name in exile. And God says, I'm going to do you a huge favor. That's grace. Somebody you probably never heard of, Daniel Block, said this. When God begins to act favorably towards his people, it has nothing to do with their initiative or merit. On the contrary, in their salvation, they will wake up to the remarkable grace of God who has taken wretched sinners and restored them to full covenant relationship with himself. 
I want you to learn this from today's lesson. And that is that God does what He does for His glory. God does what He does for His glory. This is the lens through which you can look at all of history. God does what He does for His glory and we benefit from it. Even our own salvation. Look what Paul writes here in Ephesians 1 beginning in verse 4. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. Watch this. To the praise of the glory of His grace. God does what He does for His glory. And we benefit. So why would God restore Israel? First of all, for his sake. But secondly, for the heathen's sake. God would restore Israel for the heathen's sake. The very ones who were saying, oh, God must have abandoned his people. The very ones that were saying, oh, God was not strong enough to overcome Babylon. My friends, God reveals himself to all people, not just his own. He reveals himself to all people. And sometimes they become part of his people as a result. As God reveals himself to all people, sometimes they become part of his people. This is what happened during the Exodus. You know when the children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt and then eventually through the plagues that came upon Egypt from God, the Hebrews were freed? This is exactly what happened. In fact, the judgments on Egypt were God's formal introduction to the world. Now God has always existed and God created everything that does exist. But most of the world had never heard of God, just a few people. But in the Exodus, sending the 12 plagues upon the greatest nation on the face of the earth at the time, Egypt, this was God's formal introduction to the world. And how did it go? As the children of Israel were told to leave Egypt, look what Pharaoh says. Exodus 12, verse 32. Also, Take your flocks, your herds, as you have said, and be gone. Watch this. And bless me also. That's Pharaoh. Pharaoh thought he himself was a god. And he had to admit, you know what? I have encountered the one true and living God. It ain't me. Moses, get out of here. Bless me. And I want you to notice, too, it wasn't just the Hebrews who left Egypt. Just a few verses later, look at Exodus 12 and verse 38. It says, And a mixed multitude went up with them, and flocks and herds and even very much cattle. Who's the mixed multitude? A bunch of Egyptians saw what happened. They realized their gods were nothing, and they said, I want to hitch to this bandwagon. I want to go with the God of Israel. And so God reveals himself to all people, not just his own, and sometimes they become part of his people as a result. But in every case... As God reveals himself to everyone, it leaves them without excuse. Because God reveals himself through nature. This is known as general revelation. As God reveals himself to every person who's ever lived, who's ever lived through nature. A few weeks ago, Billy Moore gave me a book. I'm telling you, that book is this thick. There is no way I'm reading that thing, Billy. No way. But I was flipping through it the other day. And I found a poem I want to share with you. And it has to do with God revealing himself through nature. And this poem is called, I Saw God Today. I saw God today in the delicate petals of a rose, kissed by the dew, enhanced by the morning sun. I saw God today in a stream, catching sunlight, making its own music. 
I saw God today in the stillness of the woodland, silent except for the occasional call of birds. I saw God today as the slow darkness of a storm began as far as the eye could see. I saw God today in the tree once covered with the newness of spring, now cradled in snow, bowing to God's seasons. I saw God today in the face of a new life, a baby reaching out its little hand to know God. You see, God deserves and God invites the whole world to praise Him. God deserves the whole world to praise Him and God invites the whole world to praise Him. Currently, there's an open invitation. God has this open invitation to the entire world. Come worship me. Come praise me. You're invited. But know this in the future. It won't be by invitation. It will be by compulsion. Where the Bible says that every knee and every tongue will confess. Philippians 2 beginning verse 10. Paul writes that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God invites everybody to bow the knee and confess Christ now. But for those who don't, be assured, you will anyway one day. There's an open invitation now. The day is coming where it will be compulsion. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And know this too, that for eternity, heaven will be filled with believers from all over the world. And so this invitation now to the whole world to worship, people all over the world are accepting that invitation. The Apostle John catches a glimpse of heaven and he writes it down here in Revelation 7, 9. Look what he says. And after this I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. All over the world God invites, worship me. And one day there will be representatives from all over the world who will be in heaven doing just that. So why would God restore Israel? They didn't deserve it. They weren't good people. For his sake. Secondly, for the heathen's sake. And thirdly, for Israel's sake. Now, actually, if you notice my text this morning, verse 22, God says he won't do it for their sake. Let's go back and look at that. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sake, O Israel. But he actually will do it for them. He's not doing it for their sake, but he is going to do it for them. Look in verse 37. Thus saith the Lord God, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. So he's not going to do it for their sake, but he's going to do it for them. Remember, his ultimate purpose is for his glory. And in this case... His vindication. Why? Because the nations were saying, you abandoned your people. Why? Because the nations were saying, you weren't strong enough for Babylon. So God says, you know what? My ultimate purpose is to bring me glory and I want to be vindicated. Israel would experience divine intervention for divine glorification. And let's see here what God promises he would do. First of all, look in verse 24. He would gather them. He says, I'm going to gather you from all over. And then in verse 25, he would forgive them. Now, symbolized by sprinkling of water. Let me read verse 25. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. 
He's going to forgive them. And his forgiveness is complete. He says, I'm going to forgive you from all filthiness. I'm going to forgive you from all idolatry. Look over in verse 29. He says, I'm going to forgive you of all uncleanness. Look in verse 33. I'm going to forgive you of all iniquities. He doesn't say, Israel, I'm going to forgive you of some of your filthiness. I'm going to forgive you of some of your uncleanness. I'm going to forgive you of some of your iniquities. He says, I am going to forgive you of all your filthiness, all your idolatry, all your uncleanness, all your iniquities. Know this about God. God does nothing halfway. God does nothing halfway. That means you, every one of you in this room, and every one of you watching by TV can experience complete and total forgiveness. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how many times you've done it. It doesn't matter with whom you've done it. You can experience complete and total forgiveness. But Brother Gary, I did this. I don't care. Well, Brother Gary, I did it this many times. I don't care. Brother Gary, I was with this person when they did it. I don't care. God doesn't care. You can experience complete, total forgiveness. How? Confess your sin to God and receive His complete forgiveness through Jesus Christ. That's how. What do you mean through Jesus Christ? Well, you need to believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins. That Jesus was buried for your sins. And the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead. That's what you truly need to believe. That's what you need to bring into your heart. Total faith in Christ. Trusting that He died to pay for your sins and rose again to give you eternal life. And you will experience God's complete and total forgiveness. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter how many times you've done it. Doesn't matter who you were with when you did it. God will forgive you completely and totally. God says, I'll gather them. I'll forgive them. Look at verse 26. He said, I'll transform them. Let me read this. A new heart also will I give you. And a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I'll give you a heart of flesh. God says, I'm going to transform you. I'm going to give you a new heart. Their old heart was dead like a stone. Their new heart would be alive and would be able to commune with God. They would not only have the ability but the desire for worship, fellowship, and relationship. God says, I'm going to transform you. And he said, to go along with your new heart, I'm going to give you a new spirit. That new spirit would animate the new heart. Now, we talked about this last week, but the Hebrew word for spirit can mean wind. can mean wind. And so God says, I'm going to give you a new heart, and I'm going to blow some new wind into it. Kind of like a sailboat out on the bay. If you put your boat out there and you put your sails up and there's no wind, guess where you're going? Nowhere. But you're sitting there on the bay, you've got your sails up, and the wind starts blowing. Guess what happens? You start going. And so God says, I'm going to give you a new heart, and then I'm going to fill that heart, uh, that sail heart, if you will. I'm going to fill it with my wind, with my spirit. When there's no wind, there's no animation. When there's a lot of wind, there's much animation. God says, I'm blowing wind into your heart. Next in verse 27, he says, I'll indwell them. I'm not just going to gather them, forgive them, transform them. I'm going to indwell them. God says he will put his spirit within them where their new heart is. Let me read verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. 
This is the Holy Spirit we know today. God is promising His Spirit is going to live in His people. And notice what the Spirit is going to do according to verse 27. He will cause them to obey. He said, you're going to walk in my ways. You're going to keep my judgments. You're going to do them. But God is not done yet. Look in verse 28. He said, I'm going to establish them. I'm going to establish them. He says that you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you will be my people and I'll be your God. He would establish them as a nation. He will establish them as a people, not as Hebrews, not as Israelites, but as the very people of God. That would be their identity. Not Hebrews, not Israelites, not Americans, the people of God. But he wasn't done yet. This is like one of those Ginsu knife commercials. There's more. Verses 29 and 30, he said, I will bless them agriculturally. He mentions corn. He mentions fruit and other crops. People who pass by, verse 35 says, they're going to say, it looks just like the Garden of Eden in there. Let me read that, verse 35. And they shall say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited. He's still not done. Look in verse 31. He will convict them of their sin. It says, Then shall you remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. God is going to convict them. They will hate themselves for their sin. They will be ashamed, verse 32 says. They will be confounded. How could we have so sinned against such a loving and gracious God? This is what God said He'll do for them. Gather them. Forgive them. Transform them, indwell them, establish them, bless them, and convict them. Why is God going to do this? Because Israel's good? Because Israel's nice? Because Israel's smart? Because Israel's pretty? God's going to do it for His glory. Why does God do what He does? For His glory. Oh, by the way, What God promised to do for Israel, He's already done for us. He's gathered us as His bride. He's forgiven us of our sins. He's transformed us by His power. He's indwelt us by His Spirit. He's established us as His people. He's already done this for us. Because we're good? Because we're smart? No. Because God is gracious and He did it for His glory. Remember this, my friends. God does what He does for His glory and the benefit of His people. When God chooses to bless you and I, you know why He does that? For His glory and for the benefit of His people. And when God has to punish us, chastise us, you know why He does that? For His glory and our benefit. The writer of Hebrews talks about God's punishment in Hebrews chapter 12. Beginning in verse 11, he says, Now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless... Afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness unto them who are exercised by it. So when we get out of line and God has to punish us, He does that to create righteousness in us. And when we are righteous, guess what that does? It brings glory to Him. Why does God do what He does? To bring glory to Himself and to benefit us. But please know this. God always has our best interests in mind. How else could you explain the cross? 
other than the fact that God always has our best interests in mind. Jesus certainly didn't have his personal self-interest in mind in the incarnation. When he left the glories of heaven and came to be born to a very poor family, he's laid in a manger. Then he grows up and as an adult, he's essentially homeless. He didn't have his personal self-interest in mind. And then when he went to the cross, do you think when Jesus was hanging on the cross there, he had his personal self-interest in mind as he's bleeding and dying for us? No! God always has our best interest in mind. There's a great southern gospel song. And I was going to just read you some of the verses and then I found a video that I'd rather show you. I hope it works. But the name of this southern gospel song is When He Was on the Cross, I Was on His Mind. Because remember, God always has our best interests in mind. And so I'm going to attempt to show you this. When He was on the cross, I was on His mind. I'm not on an ego trip I'm nothing on my own I've made mistakes And often slipped Just common flesh and bone But I'll prove someday Just what I say I'm of a special kind When he was on the cross I was on his mind A look of love was on his face The thorns were on And the blood fell on that scarlet robe Stained it crimson red Though his eyes were on the crowd that day He looked ahead
was Jesus thinking about when he was on the cross? Himself? No way. He was thinking about you. And he was thinking about me. And he was thinking about how he could bring glory to God. And he did. God says to Israel, I'm going to restore you. But why? Why? For his sake. For the heathen's sake. And even for Israel's sake. But remember this, Christian. In your own life, when you study history, when you look to the future, look through this lens. God does everything he does for his glory. And we benefit as a result. And if you're here today and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, what are you waiting for? Look what he did for you. And that's not even real. That's just an actor. Jesus did it for real. He shed his blood for real. He had that crown of thorns for real. He died for real for you. Don't reject it any longer. Receive Christ as your Savior. Have your sins completely, totally forgiven. And leave this life one day knowing you will live forever in heaven with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. And now we thank you for this time of decision, this time of invitation. You invite the whole world to worship you. You invite all to come to you. And so, Father, bring them. Bring them in this room. Bring them over the Internet. Bring them to you, not to me, not to church, to you, so that you will receive all the glory. And we thank you in Jesus' name.